Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I'm uh, joined here today by Michelle Roberts, who is an attorney and partner at Cantor and Cantor, um, which is a legal group that specializes in, in disability insurance. And um, Michelle herself specializes in cases involving ERISA, the ERISA Act. So she's going to talk to us a bit about that. So Michelle, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to uh, be a guest on your podcast. Yeah, I'm so glad we were able to connect. So just to get us started, why don't you tell us a bit about your legal work in the disability space and how you came to it? Sure. Yeah. So I know that uh, ERISA is not a familiar acronym to most people, so I'll just define it as the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, and it's a federal law that governs most employer-provided benefits. And so the work that I do, um, primarily focusing on disability insurance benefits, um, comes into play if you have a, a workplace policy. So if you work in the private sector and you don't work for like a church or a government um, agency or government entity, I should say, mm-hmm. your policy that you get through your employer is likely going to be covered by ERISA. So that's that's pretty much in a nutshell um, the type of law that I do or that I, that I focus on. And, and really how I, I came to this work is, uh, you know, not necessarily a linear path. I think most people kind of don't <laughs> end up in, in their careers um, following a linear path. But um, by way of background, so my, my father is actually a um, disabled veteran. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And then today's Memorial Day. But, I you know. know. He's, still, he's still alive, you know, great. thankfully. But, you know. Um, it's appropriate. I, we're, we're meeting today of all yes, this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we planned it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so growing up, I was able to kind of, you know, I saw him kind of struggling with his, uh, you know, physical and mental disabilities that he got um, from serving in the armed forces. He was in the Navy. And um, so I have that background. And then, you know, in college, you know, working for employers where I saw that, um, you know, certain employees who maybe didn't really understand their rights um, pretty much had, I just saw a lot of workplace violations. So I kind of went into law knowing I wanted to do something 
representing employees, representing workers. And then I also had this background of, you know, being very aware of what it's like when you have a family member who's disabled in the workforce, right? Yeah. So my first job out of law school was with a firm that uh, pretty much specializes in ERISA law. And then that's how I kind of came to you know, I fell into the practice that way. And I just really came to really love working with people who have disabilities who are trying to get benefits because it was just, to me, it felt really rewarding. And I was able to really relate to my clients and their experience. That's wonderful. So specifically, because this is not an area of law that I'm terribly familiar with. Does that mean that um, ERISA law is, it applies most to cases where, uh, say, someone has realized that they have some kind of chronic illness while working full-time? Or is it something where these disabilities are caused by the workplace? How does that sort of shake out? Yeah, so it, it could be either of those scenarios. So in order for this law to come into place, you do have to have a policy that um, you, you got while you were working. Right. So there are de- different types of disability benefits and government provided benefits that could provide you with disability insurance if you if you aren't working at the time that you incur a disability. Mm. But, you know, sometimes I have clients who, as a result of maybe workplace stress, mm. um, become disabled and that's the basis for their claim. Other times they might get a condition that's completely unrelated to work. And as a result of that condition, they're not able to work. And then the insurance companies are usually the ones that insure these policies or private insurance companies. Sometimes employers will self-fund these plans, but you don't see that as often. It's usually really big employers who have the resources to do that. But most employers will provide or will purchase like a disability insurance policy. Right. So do you see any particular illnesses? Do you see a trend in, in which ones are coming up the most among your clients? You know, it, that's a very interesting question. So it's not that um, I see more types of illnesses that cause disabilities, but I might see insurance companies fighting certain conditions more aggressively, mm. right? Because there's issues with proof. And I think mm. in particular, and I know, I mean, I think your audience is probably pretty aware of, you know, what, what is an invisible illness, but it's it's basically, you know, just to remind your audience, when we talk mm. about invisible illness. It's like, that's the umbrella term um, to any like medical condition that's not easily visible to others. So some that I see, you know, we see a lot in our practice um, are chronic physical conditions like fibromyalgia, Mm. chronic fatigue syndrome, traumatic brain illnesses, Mm. cognitive impairments that might be caused by some underlying medical condition, Mm. mental illness, um, multiple sclerosis, lupus, Lyme disease. I mean, I can go on. It's just, those are lots of the conditions that we see, but you know, lately, I, I, I feel like we are seeing a lot of pushback from insurance companies when somebody is diagnosed and disabled by chronic fatigue syndrome mm. or Lyme disease. You know, back, you know, like 10 years ago, the big fight was over fibromyalgia. You know, mm. saying, well, that's not even a real illness. Right. And now we know. And I think courts are, courts are a little bit behind on the science, yeah. but, but courts are even now recognizing like, you know, fibromyalgia, it's, it's a legitimate disabling condition, but sometimes right. you still have doctors that say, you know, there's no such real thing as chronic fatigue syndrome or, or Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, so there's, when you have that skepticism that's there, especially in the medical community, of course, you're going to get insurance companies that are going to, you know, that's got to be just as frustrating for you as it is for your clients, I imagine, because it's something where they're really trying to fight for for their rights and and you're doing that for them as well. And to not be recognized is 
I mean, that happens all the time in this world. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and, and it's a struggle for a lot of my clients because, you know, a lot of my clients are just, you know, they've got these like strong work ethics and they have a very strong like career identity and then they're not able to do their job anymore. And, you know, of course, there's always that thing in the back of mind, like, well, am I trying hard enough? Am I pushing myself hard enough? Yeah. Well, they're already struggling with that. And then you've got this insurance carrier saying, you, you're not, you, you, can, you can work. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm. Um, and that's, that's hard. You know, it, yeah. it's really hard. So it's really the, the insurance companies that are creating more of the rift between employer and employee, it sounds like, in these cases. Yeah, you know, the, the dispute is typically not with the employer because the employer, yeah. especially with insured plans, they're not the ones that are making the decisions. Mm-hmm. But it does, it, in some ways, it does create a tension because, you know, the employer might be providing, let's say, an accommodation or a leave of absence as a form of an accommodation. Right. And then their third party carrier saying, oh, but this person isn't entitled to benefit. So the employer's like, well, you know, what is it? Like, I've got mm-hmm. an obligation under the law to provide an accommodation, but that that obligation does not extend to the insurance company to force them to pay benefits. Right. They get to administer the term, you know, their, their policy based on their terms. And so they... So in that situation, there, there sometimes is some tension, um, mm. but most of the time employers, you know, they know that they have to comply with like the ADA or whatever the, the state law uh, right. is that requires them to provide accommodation, but it's not something that they have to provide for like years on end. Yeah. And I mean, we hear different cases from various guests who I've had on the show where often employers are making accommodations and there are the rare case where employers aren't. Um, uh, and is that something that you touch on as well, or you're more focused on the insurance aspect of it? I'm more focused on the insurance aspect of it. Right. Yeah. And so, so sometimes my clients are in situations where they're deciding like, do I continue to try to work even part-time and then maybe collect a partial disability benefit? Or am I really at the stage now where I've got this chronic illness, it's going to be a long term, you know, likely a permanent disability. And I really need to invest in this insurance claim, because most of these policies will pay to age 65 or until retirement age. Mm. So if you're, you know, a 49 year old individual, whose long term work prospect is bleak because of your medical condition, Mm. you really want to make sure these um, benefits are being yeah. And we should mention that these are also distinct from state and federal benefits as well. These are specific to uh, employer plans with insurance companies, um, in case anyone is a little confused about that, because I was That's certainly right. confused in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <right now>. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are, they overlap in the sense that, so a lot of these, these private policies require people to apply for state benefits and federal benefits because they, they take them as an offset. So if you have a policy that says, okay, I'm going to insure you for 66 and two thirds percent of your salary, we're going to look at what you get from other sources so that if you combine all of your disability income sources, you're not going to exceed that level because they don't want people to be incentivized, right? To to stay on disability. Right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense from a, a, a corporate perspective, I suppose. Right, right. Um, so has the opioid crisis come up in your work as it applies to the, the chronic and invisible illness community? And if so, um, have these cases become tougher to fight because of new restrictions and the reluctance of healthcare providers to prescribe opioids at all? Yeah, so that it's really interesting because I, I feel like this has come up in, in a couple of different ways um, with my clients. So, it, you know, we have this really good body of case law mm-hmm. that requires insurance companies to take into consideration side effects of medication. And right. so a lot of our clients, with particularly with chronic pain, right. um, they are on, they've been on opioid medication for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we always make these arguments based on the case law that you have to con- consider side effects and 
known side effects of opioid medication are, you know, like dizziness and inability to focus and, you know, being tired and, and all of these other things. And who would want to take this, these really strong medications if it weren't that they were suffering from significant chronic pain. Yeah. And, and now you've got this like backlash. And so you have doctors that are now like less willing to prescribe as much, uh, but you also have um, a reluctance and I'm finding a lot of my, my patient, my patients, my clients are reluctant. <laughs> was, it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned yeah. that because I, as I was getting my questions ready for you, I was yeah. writing patients slash clients every yeah. time because yeah. they are patients, you know, they are, they are, they are. Yeah. And I, and I've, and I've read enough medical records that sometimes I think I'm a doctor and I diagnose people, but I'm really not. (laughs) You and I both. So there we go. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I was saying is that, you know, I have, um, my patients, my, my clients. (laughs) Um, I think it's great. Yeah. It shows a level of empathy on your part yes. as well as, as their legal counsel. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. And I also have patients. Yes. Um, ah, there we go. Doing this work. So, yeah. so they, um, they, they, they also don't want to be addicted. They don't want to no. be reliant and dependent on a medication. So mm. where this has come, this has been a problem on the flip side is, you know, the doctors will prescribe the medication. My client will say, I'm not going to take it. I'd rather suffer. Mm. And then the insurance company goes, you're not really in pain because if you were in pain, you would have taken the medication. Oh boy. So it's like, you can't win, right? Cause you take the medication yeah. and then they're like, ah, oh, we don't think you need the medication. You're really not in that much pain. And then you do take the medication or you don't take the medication and you're just like, you know, I'm going to suffer with, you know, level seven pain all day long. Yeah. And they're like, well, you must not really be that bad. So, mm, and that can then get in, in the way of someone receiving full benefits, I imagine. It, it, it's one of the factors that, that can make it difficult. I mean, you have to understand like when an insurance company is evaluating these claims, they, they are looking for red flags They're looking for anything that suggests this person's not credible. Yeah. So if you have a prescription or you don't have a prescription, um, that, that could be read in, you know, a mm. way that might the insurance company could say you're not really in as much pain as you're saying you're in. It's interesting what you just said about, you know, these insurance companies are looking for any sign that, that these clients and patients are, are not credible. And that's, I guess, the most frustrating element of it, isn't it? Because, you know, from a patient perspective, nobody wants to feel this way. Um, but you know, having access to care is so essential and that the system is sort of rigged against, um, patients in in these particular cases, it sounds like that makes it even more of an uphill battle. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, speaking of uh, this kind of the empathy involved in 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 dealing with people who are patients and having patients, <laughs> as you do, um, do you find that that your clients often? require a greater greater level of empathy from you as well because they feel like they're shuttled between yes. specialist to specialist and and you know court to court um when they by the time they get to you are you sort of like the soft landing for them and is there an element of of you know warmth that you have to exude in order to really gain their trust as well yes yeah i mean I, that's an excellent question um mm-hmm. i often say you know i am not a therapist but i am yeah you know, and um, you know so by the time that people come to me um not in every case, but in most cases, they're just at the end of the the rope, right? I mean, they're just like, you know, what do I do? I'm about to lose my job. I'm about to lose my health care. And now the insurance company just denied my claim. Mm. You know, they, they can't, they're barely managing their, you know, if they might not know what their diagnosis is. They might be dealing with a lot of medical issues. 
and then all the paperwork involved with an insurance claim. So yeah, I mean, they do require, I mean, I, it's a balance of being warmth and empathetic, but also having the client know that they can trust me to be an aggressive advocate for them with the insurance. Yeah. That is a delicate balance. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and and I usually, you know, a lot of times after I've spoken to a client, I've said, you know, this is what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the burden off of your shoulders. I'm going to deal with the insurance company. You never have to talk to them again, you know, unless I'm there or I'll handle the communications. They just feel a sense of relief. They're just like, yeah. you know, well, I'm going to let this person take care of it. She knows what they're doing. The firm knows what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm going to just focus on my myself. And my Yeah. Which must be a huge relief for them. And, and do they, do you find that they often come to you with an advocate as well? Like, are they coming to you alone or are they coming with, you know, a loved one who's helping with their care or helping with their, their mental health within the care space? Yeah, I, I would say at probably at least half my clients, if not more, I am regularly dealing with some close family member, like a spouse or a parent or a sibling, because they just can't manage it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll have to, if I can't get information from my client, I'll, you know, be like, who, who can I contact in case of emergency? Who's going to be able to give me this information? Who's going to help me be able to represent you? Because yeah. it, it is, even though I'm, I'm taking the burden off of their hands when it comes to dealing with the insurance company, there's still a lot of information and interactions I need to have with the client to kind of understand the case, to build, to build the case and understand what evidence is there. So um, yeah, I am often working with, with close family members who. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose that's probably a good sign, right? I mean, it's, it's tough to go these, these things alone. And the fact that, you know, many of your clients would be showing up with a loved one or a family member is, is huge because it shows that they are reaching out to the people around them, which is Right. That's good. <laughs> right. Um, so how often, um, following up from what you were mentioning before about the insurance companies um, often requiring uh, your, your clients to also be getting some benefits from state or federal um, disability claims, how often do these clients end up on some kind of government ass- assistance in addition to the claim that they're seeking with these private insurance companies? Right. Well, so we're in California and California is one of five states that actually has um, short-term disability benefits. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you consider that assistance, I, just, I mean, it is stuff, it is a benefit we pay into, but yeah. it is um, one that is relatively easy comparatively, at least to the private policies to get approved if your doctor certifies your disability. So almost all of my clients in California are going to get state disability and that, but that ends after 52 weeks, right? Long-term disability, then you apply for social security, but that takes a really long time to get approved in in many cases. But I would say most of my clients who have chronic long-term disabilities, um, I think all of them are on social security or receiving social security. Yeah. I mean, that probably makes sense. And from what I understand, those social security cases, they when you say they take a long time to be approved, they take somewhere from three to five months, but can be longer than that. Is that right? Um, typically much longer than that. So uh. some, some clients will get approved upon submitting the application, mm. but a lot of people will not get approved until they've done a couple of appeals and then have a hearing before an administrative law judge. That could take a year and a half to two years to get that hearing. Oh my goodness. Depending on where you are. Yeah. So I tell my clients when they come to me, so I don't, you know, handle the the public benefits, but I know enough about them right? because there's so much interaction between the private and the, and the public Mm. spheres. But I'll tell them, you know, if you anticipate that you're going to be out for at least 12 months, apply now. 
because it can take a while to get paid. Yeah. And there's a five month waiting period for the federal social security. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. And it's, it's like you think about the number of people who would be not in a position to be receiving these private insurance benefits, you know, the waiting right. game that they'll be in, but that's where um, the state benefits in California do come into play, don't they? Cause you can sort of be on that, as you say, for 52 weeks before you right. apply for the federal, but if you sort of do it at the same time, which is a lot yeah. of work. And there are, I should say that there are also attorneys who specialize in um, these uh, state and federal claims as well. So where Michelle is someone that that our listeners could reach out to with regard to these private disability claims, there are other, um, you know, areas of the law that, that lawyers specialize in as well that with regard to disability insurance. So sort of across the board, you can always seek help. That's right. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the U.S. system with regard to work-life balance and how you're seeing that play out with your your clients um, and with particular regard to disability insurance? Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting when we think about, you know, we talk about work-life balance all the time. I mean, just as a, you know, I'm a a parent, I'm I'm a single parent, with joint custody of two kids and I'm a partner in a law firm. So we talk about, you know, like, it's, um, you know, is there always a balance like balance? Yeah. But it's always a balancing act. You know, you you give, you give and take in always, and you're never a hundred percent in either, but that's just what it is. Yeah. Um, But I think where this, it's really interesting. So I was talking to my, one of my colleagues, Andrew Cantor about this Mm -hmm. and about how, um, you know, generationally when you, when you think about, um, employees commitment to the workforce before you would, you know, maybe people in my generation or the generation before me were like, you know, you, you work until you die, you're going to work, 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 and you, you kill yourself working. And that's just the work ethic you have to have. Whereas, you know, the kind of newer generation, they're just like, you know, I kind of want my balance. I want my, my free time. I'm not going to kill myself working. So I think that's to, also come, yeah. that's come hand in hand with salaries, not always matching the cost of living. Absolutely. Like do. Yeah, exactly. Like the dollar is just not buying no. what, it, what it used to buy. Like you no. could not, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you could have a, a separate podcast just on that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just on that alone. That's like, that's a whole yeah. other episode. <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> um, but, but where this, but it's interesting because where this comes into play, it's that how much do you have to suffer? How much does your work life, does your life balance have to suffer before an insurance company says, now we think you should get disability benefits, right? Mm -hmm. So where I see this come into play where sometimes I'll see, um, I'll look at files and I'll see doctors, reviewing doctors that the insurance companies hire, evaluate a claim and say, well, this person's still driving their kids to school or this person could still attend a little league game. So until you get to the point where they're doing absolutely nothing with their children, You know, it's basically along those lines where unless they see that you absolutely cannot do anything but work, um, they're not going to, they're going to think that you could just, you could still do it. Right. And so there's this like frightening. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's it's upsetting and it's, it's maddening, but it's saddening at the same time. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and it's a question I get from my clients a lot because they're just like, you know, I'm at a point where right now I'm working half time. So maybe they're they're working part time. They're getting a partial disability benefit, but all they, that's all they can do. And they're like, how much of my personal life of my family life of my social life do I have to give up to to show that I deserve benefits? And it's a hard question for me to answer 
yeah. I have to say, because I know like if they're being um, surveilled, which is pretty common in the private disability insurance world and the, and the surveillance shows them, you know, going to meet a friend for lunch or going to the grocery store, you better believe they're going to cite to those things and say, well, if you could sit there and have lunch and you could sit there and, and you know, um, buy groceries, why can't you work? It's really, really, we see those yeah. arguments all the time. Well, and also that you mentioned the surveillance. That's a really interesting one to me because there's a real dehumanizing aspect to, you know, having a real human complaint of living in chronic pain or, or you know, having chronic mental illness or something and, and not feeling that you can function up to your optimal level, you know, and then suddenly have people following you around and photographing you out and, um, you know, providing evidence to the contrary. Um, it's, it, I mean, it, it seems like uh, in terms of privacy, your privacy is being challenged a lot of the time, but also like if you are trying to collect money from these, these larger corporations, I mean, of course that's the way of business in this world now, but it's, you do have to sacrifice. You're already sacrificing, right? right? Because you can't function the way you used to. And then you're sacrificing your privacy and you're sacrificing, you know, being able to go to your kid's little league game because it's the only way in order to, to really be able to afford to pay for your family. So the sacrifices that you then have to choose to make in order to be recognized, that's really, that's, that's tough. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because like, so today is a holiday, right? Yeah. I bet you I have a client who's being surveilled today because they know while it's a holiday, you're probably going to go to a barbecue. Maybe you'll leave the house. These are the, these are the times that they want to, they want to see if you're going to go do something on your birthday. It's, and it's, it's really, it's, it's really infuriating. I actually lost a case a long time ago where I had argued that the insurance company who was standing, um, their their surveillance agent was standing on the street, zooming into my client's window. (gasps) had her window open, but she, she was in the kitchen well, she wasn't like undressing, but still, it's, but it's in her home. Violative. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's so a total violation. That seems I argued there was a privacy violation mm. and uh, the, I lost a summary judgment because the court said she was in her house, but the windows were open and it was, he saw what anybody could see standing on the street. Wow. And so you don't have uh, a right to privacy in that. Now, certainly if the agent crawled into her backyard um, you know, trespassed and was looking through her window and saw her unchanging, that would be a different story. But I tell my clients, if you are out in public, you have to assume that like you can be videotaped and mm. it's not going to be a privacy violation. But when you're already dealing with having to give the insurance company all of your medical records yeah, so they can parse through them and, and point out inconsistencies, like you are, you're opening yourself up and it feels really like you don't have any more privacy. Yeah. And, and you've got to feel like you're, you're fighting a losing battle a lot of the time, but that's exactly why people like you exist <laughs> right you now. Um, and that's where I suppose a lot of the work that you're doing, as you mentioned earlier, is like really booing up your your clients and, and giving them the hope that, that there is a way through it if you do see right. a light at the end of the tunnel. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible, this August they are offering you $50 off. 
Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R-Labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE50 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Oh, wow. It's just, that whole world is, it's brutal out there. So I commend you for for working in this space, because that is, I mean, just hearing about it makes me boil. Um, So, yeah. So are there, do you think that there are any ways in, in which the system is working for, for patients and clients. You know, I know we're talking about this work-life balance thing is a tough one to really hit on appropriately for most people's lifestyles, but um, are there ways in which the medical system and the insurance system are actually working for people um, beyond these difficulties and these privacy issues? Yeah. So in terms of when you, um, you talk, when you ask about like the health system and the, and the disability mm-hmm. insurance system, I mean, they, they really go for my clients like hand in hand because they, they need medical records. They need medical treatment because these policies actually require, most of them do, um, mm-hmm. that you are under the regular care of a physician mm-hmm. and that you are getting the, like the appropriate level of treatment because with the, the idea that you are trying to get better and to go back to work. But what happens if your insurance is through your employer? And you lose your job because you can't work, right? Well, is that a wrongful termination case often as well? You know, not always. No, it depends because an employer, you know, they have an obligation. They have a requirement under the law. Most most employers do, not maybe very, very small employers, Mm. to accommodate you if they can, if it's not undue burden. But it's not, it depends on what you need to be able to work. What if you can only work two hours a day on your own time from your house? Mm. depending on the employer's business, they might not be able to accommodate that. Right. Right. Or maybe what you need is a leave of absence, but they can't accommodate you being gone for more than a year Mm. before they like need to replace you and they can't keep you on. So you have, if you lose your health insurance because the employer doesn't have to accommodate you indefinitely, um, what are your options? Cobra, you know how expensive Cobra is? Oh, it's it's, fortunate. Yeah. It's, it's extremely expensive. You could also, I mean, you know, fortunately we have the, plants on the exchange mm-hmm. and who knows how much longer that's going to be there right. and how affordable that's going to be. And that's so only recent as well. That's, that's recent as well. And so a lot of times for people who had difficulty getting Cobra, I could say, you know what, it's probably cheaper just go out on the exchange and get a mm-hmm. policy because you cannot lose healthcare. Right. You need it. Um, you need it now more than you ever did. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you, have, when you have a job loss and then you, you can't afford Cobra and then your insurance company is saying, we're not going to pay your claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have the money to pay for the Cobra. And then you get in the situation where, you know, you, you can't have that. And then the insurance company is saying, well, now we're not going to pay your claim because you don't have evidence that you were seeing a doctor, you know, you're just in this like mm-hmm. really vicious downhill cycle. And so I think your, your question was actually, in what ways is it working? And I just went down the total. <laughs> the way it's not working. It's not working. But actually, part so, of that question is where yeah. is it falling short? So yeah. you know that is. I jumped hard. ahead. <laughs> you jumped ahead, but I mean, honestly, like it's interesting because I think also because of the work that you do, you're seeing the flaws more than you're seeing right. the where, where it works. Right you now, and and is that also a larger question of is it just not working? And is there something that we need to do in terms of reform across the board to make right. care more accessible to people right. who need it, you know? Right. Um, I would say that, you know, I, I have definitely my own personal beliefs about, sure. you know, what the healthcare system should be. I think it should be accessible and affordable to every single yeah. person. I mean, And especially it, in the field you work in, I'm sure that's really, you know, reinforced that belief too. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, and just even in my, you know, so when I was, um, I think five or six years old, I must've been, I was born with a hernia and, you know, fortunately my dad was in the military and we had healthcare, but you know, he was, my parents were relatively, you know, uneducated if they didn't have, if if he wasn't in the military, who knows if I would have been able to get that surgery, you know, or what that would have cost them, would it have bankrupted them? And so what would the long-term effects have been on, on you physically? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, you know, I really believe that we need, you know, for everybody, you know, for healthcare to be accessible and affordable. Yeah. We have, we need a single payer system. Is that, you know, I don't want to get into all of that. I don't know if any of us really know what the answer is. I know that there are a lot of people who are like, it's a single payer system. We've got to do the single payer system. And on a certain level, I totally agree. But then, you know, we've seen that work and not work in different places, you know, so it's really, but the bottom line is that right now the system we have. Right. Not helping. Yeah. But where, I mean, where this works, where you can have experience, continuous care, um, is, you know, with, if, if everything kind of lines up that you, mm-hmm. you have employee, you have a uh, healthcare safety, you're an employer, you lose that, you either get on Cobra and then you get social security. And then mm-hmm. after 24 months of social security, you get Medicare. So if everything happens in a timely basis, you actually don't lose coverage, right? So right. you can have Cobra um, and then Medicare and then that's great. But right. for most people, they lose something along the line or something doesn't quite line up and then they have a gap in coverage. Well, it's interesting you you mentioned that because, I mean, this is stuff that's been coming up as we've been talking, right? That like it can take two years to even get, you know, benefits through social security, which is the federal benefit. So, you know, unless you're aware of the timeline um, for application and, um, you know, all of that for all of these different uh, elements of, of care and, and insurance right. that you can apply for. And I don't know that there is sort of a central system where you can look up how long does it take for this to get approved? When should I apply for this? You know, that there is that kind of resource for patients. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of, I mean, because people don't research these things until they need it. Right. right. And, so and then you go to wait two years for it and exactly. it's like, what do you do? Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. And I, I suppose that's an area of, of, as an employee, being aware of your rights. And again, you, you know, what you say, like people aren't going to look it up until they need it, but knowing what your rights are, um, that's where it's so important, isn't it? Because if you're aware of what your rights are um, and you have full a full spectrum idea of what that is going into every situation, but, you know, that's that's never something that we learn in college or no, not even in law school. I mean, you don't really like learn these things until you you're out in the field and you, yeah. you know, you are, um, you're specializing in, and actually just what you said in terms of knowing your rights, that was going to be my, what I was going to close with in terms of like the top three things that you should do. Yeah. Right? And we'll get to that later, but we'll get to that. Yeah knowing your rights. Yeah, that's a huge thing. And it's interesting because in my last job before I had to stop working, I became very passionate about not only knowing my rights, but making sure that people who I was managing also knew theirs. Um, Because even within small companies, you know, it's important that people educate themselves. Um, But education is key there. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about where the system's working, where it's not working. Um, In if improvement is needed in particular areas, and I know that we've sort of touched on this again, you know, like the single payer thing and all that, right. um, how would you suggest 
from your perspective within the legal world that we go about that as a community, are there ways that we can improve things immediately aside from patients knowing their rights? Are there ways that the system can improve immediately to help people? Right. I think one area um, where we as a community can do better um, and and you're starting to see a lot of this in the news, or at least I am, um, is like access to, to quality mental health care. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, even with mental health parity, um, you, we, we are falling short on providers. Yeah. We, we just, you know, and then if you don't have private insurance that covers it, I mean, you're, you just, you see these like, you know, revolving doors to the ER psych units on things that like, if you could just have like the preventative care, um, or just like the regular, you know, just access to mental quality mental health care, a lot of things could be avoided. Well, Um, I wonder if then, you know, quality mental health care actually becomes part of a preventive plan that like everyone is offered that at some stage, you know, it should absolutely be that. Yeah. I I have really strong feelings about that. I mean, Mm. absolutely. And I think, you know, again, you talking about community and, um, you know, what, what can we as a community be doing? It's just like, stop. Um, we should just be more open Mm. about these things. Um, you know, 20 years ago, it was like, you didn't want to say you had depression. You didn't want to no. say, you know, yeah. um, you had somebody in your family who had killed themselves. Like these things were so hush and there was a lot of shame around that. Mm-hmm. And if we just had greater dialogue, I mean, like the dialogues that, you know, we have on your podcast and, you yeah. know, I mean, I think that's great. Um, better awareness and, mm-hmm. um, you know, less stigma, less stigma around that. I yeah. think be huge. Well, and also because, um, and this is, I'm, I'm gleaning this from our conversation as well. What you've been saying is that, you know, when people have a physical disorder, there is often a huge mental health component as well, you know, and, and the questioning begins when, when they have to leave work or when they have to pull back at work, you know, when you're dealing with people who are used to being fully functioning professionals who have personal and professional lives, um, that work in tandem and all of a sudden, you know, these structures sort of collapse under you. And when you have the rug pulled out from under you, what that, the toll that that takes on you mentally, um, is significant. Um, to say the least. Significant. And I don't have, I mean, I'm trying to thank most of my clients, if not all, who have a long-term chronic illness, like they've been on disability for like over a year. Um, and it looks like they're going to stay on disability. I don't, I can't even think of one that is not suffering from some form of depression, anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, it's, it's just part of the, the package. And unfortunately, yeah. because a lot of these disability policies have limitations on how much they'll pay for mental yep. illness. Which is unreal to me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Social security doesn't have that limit. You know, wow. state disability doesn't have it, but mental health, mental health parity has not extended to the private disability insurance policies yet. Mm. And that, so it's that, still that, not that is one. Yeah. It's still not considered essential is what we're getting. Right. At. I mean, cause it's like these, these plans and, and you have to keep in mind too, they're, they're voluntary because ERISA doesn't require that employers even provide these plans. So they're just like, look, we're providing you a benefit um, unless it's completely illusory. And even in those situations, it's okay. Um, we're giving you something extra that we didn't have to. So right. if we want to have, um, you know, a two year limitation on what we'll pay for mental health claims, that's going to be enforceable. Yeah. I would love to see this change legislatively. Like I would like to see yeah. mental health parity extend to disability insurance policies. And then you don't have to worry about, 
you know, what am I disabled from? How do I prove it? If I've got, you know, really disabling mental conditions, but I also have really disabling physical conditions, mm-hmm. do we really have to like downplay the mental and, you know, play the physical just so I can get paid? I can't work as a result yeah. of a, a medical condition. That's yeah. enough. And it really should be. Well, and in terms of like creating these, these real concrete inroads legislatively, as you mentioned, you know, Mm -hmm. like how do we go about that? You know, is that something where we find someone like you who maybe has like a pro bono aspect to their practice and we start consulting with legal teams and, and get, you know, different political systems involved? Um, You know, like how, how, like if I, if I wanted to go out tomorrow and and try to change the legislation, how, how would I do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, where we've we've done some um, advocacy as a, as a law firm, and we've worked with like the California Department of Insurance, mm. right? And, or um, like the Department of Labor actually issues regulations under ERISA that we actually just had some new regulations in place this year that have mm. that are supposed to make the disability process fairer. So there are these like you know avenues where you can kind of chip away or kind of strengthen strength and rights. But, you know, I just, I think what we, what I'd love to see, and I'm not exactly sure exactly how to go about doing it, but like I said, just to have, um, you know, the a dedicated group really is what, we yeah. And just here. like, yeah. And have, um, you know, really be able to just build in more, um, benefits with these like policies, yeah. like say, like, if you're going to provide this, you can't have an exclusion for mental illness or you right. can't have a limitation. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't really know exactly how we go about doing that, but I would love to see it. We're not going to see it in the court system. Like there, I can argue about it until I'm blue in the face to the court of appeals. They're not going to be able to change the law. Like yeah. That's well, that's, and also you're dealing with the law as it is now, as opposed to, you right. know, sort of changing things, whether it's on a, a local and state level, or if it's on a constitutional level and that, those are completely different practices yeah. in the law as well. So. Right. Right. I'm just in the hunger games arena, you know, I'm just like <laughs> working with, with, in the world that I am. I've got something. You really are. We got, we have volunteered as tribute. <laughs> well, speaking of, you mentioned advocacy and, and I was wondering, you know, cause obviously you got into this world of disability insurance because of your personal experience and, and, um, sort of the direction you, you took when you were out of law school and everything. But I, I was wondering if there's any advocacy work that has extended beyond your practice that you have participated in, um, or if there's advocacy work that you're looking to do um, that that you could speak to us about? Yeah, I mean, I do, um, I spend a a fair amount of time kind of volunteering in the um, local legal community. And it just really, it's more, um, again, providing access to people who have health conditions that, and they aren't able to like afford legal services or they they don't know what their rights are. And so, um, you know, like one of the organizations I volunteer with, I've volunteered with for a long time is the AIDS Legal Referral Panel um, that's based in San Francisco. And they provide uh, free and low um, or low cost um, legal services to people who are living um, with HIV AIDS in the, that's in the wonderful. local Bay Area community. Yeah. And, and that's um, and that's really rewarding or just working with our local legal aid at work workers rights clinic. And talking to people there about, you know, their workplace issues and just letting them know what their rights are. I mean, fundamentally, I think the biggest problem is that a lot of times people just don't know what they don't know. Right. Yeah. And that's that's. a And so just being able to um, volunteer my time and doing that, I think, is just 
um, it, it's really rewarding. And I, but I also think as an attorney, we, we really have this like obligation to yeah, yeah. our time in this way. Well, and that you mentioned sort of, you know, paying for legal services and working with local legal aid. And, you know, that's something that I wonder about as well. And, um, you know, in terms of like the cost of, of legal services to, to access um, disability insurance, you know, um, I, I'm assuming it's obviously it's it's clients who are in the private sector who are coming to you. So they already probably had like a fairly decent, um, you know, salary um, going into everything so that they're able to contribute to their legal aid in that way. But, um, you know, if people are struggling to even afford legal aid, are there are there recourses that they can take and organizations that they can go to that, that you're aware of and can tell us about that um, might help with some of the cost of their their legal services? Yeah, so uh, uh, the um, I mentioned the AIDS Legal Referral Panel. I know that they have some attorneys who will do appeals. Um, a lot of attorneys who do handle these, I mean, obviously recognize the income limitations of the people who don't have their income coming in. So right. a lot of times that work is done on a contingency fee basis. The one actually good thing about ERISA um, is that if you do have to file a lawsuit in order to get your benefits reinstated, uh, and you win, the court can order the other side to pay the attorney's fees. Oh, how uh, wonderful. For the okay. time that was spent in litigation. So it's not like all the attorney's fees because a lot of the work that you do, you have to do before you get to court. Mm. But it's it's an incentive and it's a little bit of a disincentive for the insurance companies to continue to draw out um, you know, litigation that they know is not meritorious if right. they are going to have to pay a big attorney's fees bill at the end. Well, that's yeah. good to hear then that it does cover some aspect of that too. Yeah, that's comforting yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, so how do you think we keep dialogue open um, about chronic illness, about invisible illness, about disability um, and its overlap between personal and professional. Um, how do you think, you know, we can keep talking about this and, and sort of keep making noise, <laughs> right. you know, in the most structured and um, helpful way possible? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if I have... Um, you know, I just, I yeah, it, it's a real tough one. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, just like these, these conversations that we're having and the conversations that you have on your podcast and, um, and really just, you know, people reaching out, hmm. um, talking about these issues that they might be, um, too afraid to talk about with their mental health providers, with their doctors, with their friends, with their families. Um, you know, I don't really know. I mean, it's just like, but how do we then transfer that dialogue to actual policy, right? Yeah, and that's where and it's that's having where, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah, and sort of brainstorming along the lines that we were earlier. <laughs> right, <laughs> you right. Know? And finding ways to incentivize, you know, different legal firms and different um, advocates and patient advocates to, to be involved as well. Yeah. And one, one organization I didn't mention, which I should, um, along these lines, there's a, a nonprofit organization called United Policyholders. Hmm. And they do a lot. They're like the consumer voice and not just in okay. these like disability insurance, but all types of consumer insurance. And they do a lot of amicus briefs. And so I've done a lot of that as well for this organization where there might be a, a court case and mm-hmm. we might say, look, but there's this, there's this aspect of it that you really should take into consideration and we'll file like a, what we call like a friend of the court brief to try to like highlight, like but consider this aspect of it, ah. you know, and that's, and that's one way where, you know, this like dialoguing can kind of, kind of 
get its way into the court. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah. But it's hard. It's definitely, there's a lot of limitations in, in yeah. the law. I mean, I find it really interesting because I think what you do is so wonderful. And and obviously, you know, we've discussed that you have your personal opinions about disability insurance, about, about healthcare in this country, and how your beliefs have been either reinforced or um, almost structured around your experience within these, these, um, these policies and and cases. I think it's really interesting because you're probably learning so much every day, but there's gotta be a frustration when, when you're, you're dealing with the law as it is, as opposed to, you know, um, policy change that you could try to enact. That's right. Yeah. But I commend you because you are providing a very necessary service for so many people, you know? Um, so we are sort of at the end of things yes. and um, onto the top three lists because <laughs> yes. we know I love a list. So um, what are your top three tips for someone who suspects that they, they may be entering the world of life with invisible or chronic illness and, and may need to apply for disability insurance coverage? Yes. So going back to what you said earlier about knowing your rights. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the number one thing. So if you are working for a company and you're not sure if they have disability insurance, ask HR. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when, well, you're supposed to, when you're first hired, get plan documents that say like, these are your benefits. But most people, especially disability insurance, you put that in a drawer. You don't start a new job thinking you're going to go on disability. So it's- That's the thing. We sign the papers and we don't read them. Exactly. Really yeah. I know it's a 30 page document. <laughs> like it's kind of important to read that stuff. If you yeah. Know. Yeah. Like, you know, like employers, they're, they're supposed to provide summary summary plan descriptions. Mm-hmm. And so those are the highlights of what these benefits entail. So you want to know, does your policy have a limitation for chronic fatigue syndrome? Some do. Wow. That's a, you know, you want to know that. Um, you want to know how to, you know, what you need to file a state disability claim, you know, like where you get that paperwork from. Um, Social security, you can typically apply for that online. Mm-hmm. Um, state disability, you can as well. But it's just, but with respect to the employer, um, employer side information, I would definitely have your policy before you even file a claim, before you even think about it, just to know what's in there. Yeah. Um, because what if you could do some things differently? What if there's a pre-existing condition limitation mm. that you would completely make you um, like ineligible to any, yeah, ineligible yeah. for benefits? You want to know that. Um, so that's definitely the, the top one. The second one is having the conversation with your medical providers. Mm. Um, and making sure that you are getting regular treatment so that there are supportive medical records that, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to ask for that. They're going to say, well, if you said you couldn't work as of, you know, May 27th, um, what do your medical, medical records look like? If you haven't been going to the doctor, if you hadn't been like having these conversations and letting your doctor know, like, I'm having a hard time keeping up with my workload because of X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, after I sit for more than 30 minutes, my back really hurts. I got to stand up, but, you know, I can't yeah. then... Yeah. yeah there's well, no I, wonder, I wonder if that feeds back into what you were saying earlier about your conversation within the office about, but, you know, the generational aspect where, you know, perhaps someone who has been with a company for a long time or is of an older generation may be less likely to have those supportive medical documents because they might push on till they're dead kind of thing. Like maybe there is more of that aspect. Would you find that that's sort of a trend in what you're doing as well? You know, it, it's really case by case. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I definitely don't want to stereotype, but I, I've, I've had 
more of an issue with like my male clients sometimes who won't go to the doctor yeah. <laughs> and like report this because they're like, no, I can tell for a reason. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's like, but if I think about, and I think about the clients where I've had that issue, it's all been men, but it just wow. happens to be, you know, so they, so that, that is an issue. So um, that's more where gender comes into play than age. Right. Right. Mm. Um, you know, but in terms of, you know, usually by the time I am working with a client, they are, you know, they've already like been to the doctor and it's usually the doctor who's telling them you, you've you got to stop die. working. You've right. got to like figure out, you know, how to reduce your hours or you've just got to just take some time off right. um, altogether. But just having those conversations first and just knowing that your doctor is going to be supportive because what if, you know, you, you've been going to the doctor and you've been reporting all your limitations and then your doctor, then you find out, you know, you go file a claim and their doctor's like, well, I'm not going to support this. Mm. I don't think you need to take time off. You kind of want to know that up front. Yeah, true. <laughs> right? um, and then, you know, if you need to provide, find a new provider, um, one that's going to be, you know, um, more empathetic to your situation or like yeah. really believe what you're saying about your limitations, um, then you have the opportunity to do that. But I wouldn't wait to have that conversation. Yeah, so true. It's where communication is so important. Yeah. And then when it comes to invisible illness, I find that having diaries of Mm. symptoms is really important because you can't really see somebody experiencing a migraine. I mean, you can probably tell someone's in pain, but a lot of it's subjective, like, you know, or if you have like IBS, like how much are you going to the bathroom, you know, or how severe are your migraines or how, like when you're experiencing pain, how long you're experiencing it, at what, you know, on scale of one to 10. And so if you have, if you're keeping a somewhat regular diary, mm-hmm. then you can, that's, that's proof. You know, it is, it's just, it's one aspect of proof, but it's something that I think when you are dealing with an invisible illness, it's, it's really helpful to have. Yeah. And it's interesting because we talk a lot um, with patients, right, who say, keep a diary so that you're understanding your symptoms and also providing data that you can hand to your doctor if your doctor doesn't sort of speak your language, right? Right. But it's also helpful from a legal aspect in that you're able to use that as, as evidence of, well, I'm having these attacks that are, that are, you know, compounded or brought on when I have extra stress at work and it's happening at this time. And, you know, so all of those things are connected and that's where like diaries are so important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michelle, is there anything else that you would like to add, um, for, for listeners? I definitely would love you to share, um, how they can find you. Um, if they want to contact you about, you know, working with you or if they have questions about disability insurance. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm happy and our firm's happy to, to help um, answer any questions that anybody might have about their disability insurance. Um, probably the easiest way is just to go to our website, yep. um, www.cantorlaw.net, and that's K-A-N-T-O-R-L-A-W.net. Yeah. Um, and then we have, like, a, you, you can put an inquiry through that way. That's probably the, the fastest yeah easiest way. I've done it myself. I did an inquiry <laughs> and I actually spoke to one of your other attorneys because I had questions about um, social security. And so she actually yeah. referred me to people in California who specialize in social security benefits. Yes. So it's great because she was super helpful and answered the questions I had immediately with regard to your practice. And then was like, but I can put you in touch with other people. So um, super, super helpful. And you know, for everyone listening, just remember that um, Cantor and Cantor are based in California. Um, so that certainly affects, uh, you know, disability access, legally speaking. Um, but, you know, whatever state you're in, I'm sure they can refer you or answer questions. Yeah. And we do represent um, clients in other states, too. So it's not necessarily, like if you live in another state, it doesn't necessarily mean we can't help you. But if we right. can't, we, we have a lot of resources. So 
Well, that's wonderful. Michelle, it has been such a pleasure having you on today. Um, mm-hmm. And I've learned so much. I find this so fascinating. And um, yeah, we should definitely talk about having you on again, because I, I think there's plenty more that we could talk about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.